Captain's log, Stardate 1215.7. Engineering has had considerable difficulty getting our audio recording to work, but now in the studio, Campbell Cobalt brings to you a new episode of Tripping for Good, Out on a Limb with Campbell Cobalt. Captain Jean-Luc Picard, out. Welcome, folks. It's time to get into the show. We've had way too much difficulty, and I am way too ready to tell you about the horrible, horrifying atrocities committed by human beings on this planet. Before I introduce my guest, it is time, as always, for your opening thought. A BBC article posted in late March of 2019 brought us some context for a few extremely unsettling images. Lambasted and condemned by naturalist Chris Packham, these images show several trees in fields and urban areas wrapped up like so many mass-produced abominations you can find in the aisles of your local grocery stores. If you've seen this, they were floating around YouTube. They were floating, they were floating around YouTube, Twitter, all of your modern social media. You were seeing images of trees wrapped up in these huge nets, and they looked just terrible. These beautiful, dignified life forms being wrapped up and half-choked with these nets. This practice which Packham correctly labels ghastly, is the result of a series of gross human errors. Developers, real estate developers, prohibited by law in the UK from removing actively inhabited bird nests, have had netting placed over trees so that they may be lawfully removed when the time comes, free from bird nests. In plain English, if nature gets in the way of human progress, bag it up until it's not so problematic, then chop, burn, and grind it all away. I know everyone hates a tree hugger rant, but until we all understand that we have to share the earth, I'm not going to stop, and if we don't eventually work together on this, I'm not at all out on a limb here. Life on earth is not going to last nearly as long as we're going to need it to. And that's key, and that is important when you're considering the new guest on my podcast. Here he is, all the way out here on the Starship Enterprise, Sam Barron. Let me get you my intro of Sam Barron right here. Sam's in the hot seat today, and he is the first person I ever met at Oklahoma State and a dear friend of mine to boot. Sam is a member of Alpha Gamma Rho here at OSU, and he studies ag business pre-law with a minor in political science. Sam was on the international champion livestock judging team in high school and placed third individually in the national contest. Sam, thanks for being on the show. Has anybody ever told you you look like Woody from Toy Story? In fact, they have several times. Yeah. Another question, when are you going to settle down and give your mother some grandchildren? Well, you and her would both like to know. We're going to keep you guys <laughs> waiting for a while longer on that. Sam, I'm glad you're in the studio. Tell us a little bit about where you came from. Yeah, so I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I uh, lived there till we were about till I was about twelve, and then my parents, I guess, just got tired of construction or being around <laughs> people in any form, uh, and so we moved to a town called Winnipeg, Oklahoma, about sixty miles north of Tulsa. So we're probably twelve miles from Kansas now, uh, way up northeast part of the state. Uh, run some cows up there, so. Um, so ag is a big part of your life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so uh, a lot of people growing up around that type of stuff, like ranching, ag type of lifestyle, a lot of people would struggle to get away from that as they move on. A lot of people go from the country and they want to move to the big city, and a lot of people live in the big city their whole lives. They want to live back to a more simpler, more agrarian style life. Right. What drives you to politics and ag as you sit here right now? Okay, so the agricultural side of things... Uh, being out in Winnipeg, that's really just what everyone does. I kind of came by that just by way of my parents moving to Winnipeg. Uh I became really interested in the beef production side of things. 
when I was in maybe middle school, seventh or eighth grade, uh, we bought some Hereford cows. And I think we bought four cows one day at this uh, cow sale, me and my dad. I had no idea what we were doing. He had never lived in the country before. And we really just kind of started on that together. And uh, it's something that is a great bonding uh, thing for us. And then also it's just really interesting and really fun um, for us to do together. And so uh, as far as politics goes, uh, I will say, I don't know, have you mentioned that I'm a little bit on the left side? Ooh, dirty word, dirty word here in Oklahoma. Yeah, so I'm a liberal (laughs) or progressive maybe would be uh, more accurate. I would say that probably comes from growing up in Tulsa, a lot of that. I still have a lot of roots in Tulsa. Um, the uh, more liberal policies, obviously, are oriented with living in the city, urban areas. Certainly. Um, what really got me interested in politics, actually, is uh, education in Oklahoma. I really have kind of delved into that uh, side of things as far as state politics. And then from that, it kind of blossomed into a bigger deal. And I got mm-hmm. more into the national politics uh Obviously, during 2016, I mean, everyone was involved mm-hmm. in that if you were living above ground. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things I would I would actually like to unpack a little bit about what you yeah, just said. There's a lot of, yeah. of amazing things. For one thing, you mentioned education. Mm-hmm. And I know about your mother being involved with that. Does tell, tell us a little about what she does. That's yeah. Right. So uh, she has never... She quit working when she was about to have me um, just to be a mom and stuff. And she hasn't, she's kind of stayed out of the workforce for a while. And she started volunteering at our little high school. It's a consolidated school, two-way school. We graduate around 50 kids a class. Uh, And it's actually four towns consolidated going to one school. So it's a huge school district. One of the poorest counties in Oklahoma. So the kids are really affected by that. Um, And so my mom, uh, around a year ago probably, she uh, had this idea she noticed that a lot of kids from our high school were looking for any kind of scholarship they could possibly get to go to college. And a lot of them ended up going to a smaller JUCO school. Nothing wrong with that, obviously, but they maybe had uh, aspirations for things bigger than that. And, but they just couldn't afford to pay for it because a lot of these family, families are really poor, um, just like living paycheck to paycheck like a lot of people do. And so... Um, she saw this need and she decided that she was the one that was going to fill it. And so she started an education foundation uh, just called the Oklahoma Union Public Schools Education Foundation. And uh, so she started this foundation, I think, around a year ago. And then, um, oh, sorry. She started this foundation about a year ago. She had this cow sale to kind of kick things off. It's a donation cow sale. They just sold a few cows and calves at our local stockyard. Uh, They raised, I want to say, $20,000 in the first two months or something. And with that money, they ended up being able to buy, I think, 100 Chromebooks for the school uh, and then started an arts and sciences, like STEM division for the school that she runs out of her little office that she has in the elementary school. Mm. And it really helps uh, kickstart a lot of these kids kind of creative brains a little bit. Um, Definitely. So we don't have an art program at our school. She's kind of filling that. We don't have a whole lot of science equipment at our school. She's trying to help fill that. Things like that. Mm-hmm. So. That's phenomenal. And I think a, a lot of that, a lot of that, motherly influence definitely shows in, in the things that you value and the things that you just from, from the the conversations that you and I have, which is also interesting to me. I have a considerable interest in literature and the English Mm -hmm. language and my mother teaches English in, in middle school and that's phenomenal. And 
And that is, is also another part of what I wanted to unpack about what you said about your maybe a little bit more progressive slant right, yeah. and your interest in the environment. Because I really, this is something that's very interesting to me. If, if we want to regress both of our interests and values back to a very early age, I mean, you're 12 when you moved to Winnipeg, right? So that's that's not that's not necessarily as early, but it still is a form, a very formative time. I think we would certainly agree mm-hmm. for you to get in touch with an agrarian, uh, a very of the earth lifestyle, right. a very yeah. natural lifestyle, which I think is fascinating <laughs> when you think about. Now your interest in environmentalism, in politics, yeah. on the progressive side, because this, I mean, this connection really came to me in full clarification when I was in the bathroom of the hospital in terrible pain with colitis mm-hmm. a summer ago. I was thinking about my favorite book to this day is called The Wump World by Bill Pete, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's an adorable little book, and it's about pollution and these cute little animals called the ones who live on this planet yeah. and the pollutions humans come in and just ruin everything yeah. and despite several conservative policies i surround myself with the natural world that's basically what i want to live my life around and, right and so that there's it, i think you'd be crazy to think there's not a connection there is the interest as a very very young child in things like that and things of nature and being outdoors and now being drawn to those types of things. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think uh, that's a connection that actually a lot of people fail to see because I think um, kind of the typical stereotype of a rancher is an ultra-conservative guy who doesn't care about any environmental protections or anything like that. But in my experience, that's been fairly far from the truth. I think that ranchers realize that, and agriculturalists of all varieties, realize that the earth has to be here for there to be agriculture, obviously. <laughs> Definitely. The earth has to be in some kind of decent health for there to be agriculture <laughs> right. of any kind. And while they don't maybe love the way tree huggers are going about protecting the earth, they do understand that there's value in that. Exactly. And that it's a very important issue today. Exactly. Yeah. The excellent, excellent conclusion that that I uh, came to thinking about things like that, and I've spoken with several friends, I think I've mentioned it to you before, was mm-hmm. that... And this is going to be just just a direct, blatant political thing that I'm going to say right out, right out front. The worst thing that could have possibly been done for the health of the earth was Al Gore taking the reins and politicizing it. Because I don't care what I I mean. I I understand. I understand that it's very politically heated thing about you know, especially we live in a state where oil is a big thing. Fracking is important. So obviously there are political interests involved in it. But it, it's hard for me to see how we can disagree that we really need to keep the rock that we live on in right. pretty decent shape. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty nuts to say that that is something that you should be against or for. You can yeah. be against or for certain policies, <laughs> certain business decisions, right. but we really have to start. And I don't see a lot of people disagreeing with the fact that we need the earth to be healthy and clean. I and agree. once we all understand the what is necessary for it to be healthy and clean, that's when we can start having the same conversation. Mm-hmm. You and I, you and I talk about that a lot, and you, you're someone who certainly I can have a very reasoned political political conversation with. And I think some of the things we've discussed include if if we start from different starting places and we start having a heated conversation, we're just talking past each other. Oh, for sure. Unless we agree what we're speaking about and what the logically consistent parts of each of the discussion are about, 
then we're not even having the same discussion. We're literally just speaking at each other. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the Al Gore thing is a really um, interesting point that probably very few people have thought of because he is certainly the one that brought this issue into the national spotlight and made more people aware of that. But in doing so, he separated people among party lines, or along party lines. 100%. And so I think, and then obviously Obama did it even maybe to a higher degree, and then Mm. I would argue Trump is doing it to the highest degree yet. He is definitely pushing things like that. So it started probably with Al Gore bringing that into the uh, mainstream and then just kind of snowballed from there. So right. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's it's really funny to me to see discussions being had about things like, just give me give for an example, the Paris Climate Accords. Right. So when President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords, people who were for the environment were very upset in general. Yes. People who were more on the side of, you know, not necessarily believing everything being said about mm-hmm. global global climate change and, and all of these things they were not necessarily as upset. They were probably more in favor of it. Take away from the fact that actually the Paris Climate Accords was not really a well-thought-out or a well-structured or anything that made any sort of sense as opposed to climate things. It was 100% fluff, virtue signaling, complete... I mean, it it was more of a thing like, well, let's say China has much worse climate emissions than the U.S. And so if we're all trying to get together and say, well, the whole world (coughs) is going to reduce our climate emissions, we're Mm -hmm. all going to work together to lose it. China, let's, but, and we'll put it in terms of obesity. Let's say the whole world, instead of saying we're giving out a bunch of emissions, say we're all really fat. Mm -hmm. Say China's super fat. The U.S. is pretty fat. And other countries are, you know, not doing so hot, but whatever. Moderately overweight. Exactly. So, basically what happened with the Paris Climate Accords was all these countries got together in a little group and said, China, how many pounds would you like to lose? You're wearing 300 pounds right now, you're five foot three, and, <laughs> and how, boy, we would want to know how much you want to lose. We'll write it down and we'll make sure we hold right. you to it. Yeah. China's like, we would like to lose one pound. And all the world said, yes, yes. China! China yes. is committing to China's co- world China, China is dedicated to saving the environment. Yes. United States... How are you guys doing? I think you look terrible. Uh, we hate you for World War II, and you're going to have to lose 200 pounds. <laughs> yeah. You weigh 150 right now. <laughs> and the U.S. is like, but we're, we're going to... I know what President Obama says, actually, he's mostly like, okay, sure. We would love to, we would love to right. be committed to climate change. My base likes, climate, likes fighting the climate right. change. We like doing better. So, yeah, we'll sign on for that. And then, you know... President President Trump came along and was like, "Well, my base doesn't like when we cut up. We're we're not speaking anymore. You see, in terms of talking about the actual issue of whether the Earth is going right. to be in good health. We're talking about how are we going to win voters? Exactly. And if we don't understand that, we're not at all having the same conversation. Correct. So, with that being said, what what do we what are we talking about in terms of other? other political views of yours, progressive views that you can't really, you can't really espouse in front of, you know, your, your conservative friends. What, what? Oh, I do plenty of espousing. Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, espouse some for us. I mean, I mean, do you have, do you have big thoughts about medical marijuana, recreational marijuana, recreational, all kinds of drugs? What are your thoughts on those? Uh, So 
Um, on the medical marijuana, I'm 100% in favor of medical marijuana. Right. I think that there are just way too many benefits for it to be illegal. Right. Uh, I think there's plenty of research available right now that at least proves that medical marijuana is beneficial. Definitely. Uh, as we're, far as luckily, we're at a point, I think, where mo- almost, I mean, we're, we're talking about probably in the 90% of medical marijuana is okay of the population. Yeah. But I now, agree. recreational. So recreational gets a little trickier for me, and for a while I was in favor of it, but now I think that there needs to be some kind of test for on-the-spot drivers before we legalize that. Okay. Countrywide. Okay. That's how I view that problem, because I think that it's you can obviously get a DUI right. while under the influence of marijuana. Certainly. And it's almost impossible to test for that. The cop basically just has to look at your eyes mm. or smell your car or whatever. Right. And those are very... Um, Subjective. Subject, subject, yeah, subjective. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's what I think needs to happen next. Mm. And I can't imagine, I obviously am no scientist, but I can't imagine that would be terribly difficult. It, there, there are people working on prototypes right now, yeah. and there's already technology in its infancy. I'm not sure of the company I would have to be. Yeah. Sure, but, but it's effectively a breathalyzer. Right. Just exactly. Yeah, exactly. For, and so, Sam, that's an excellent point. I was, I was, I made some anecdotal comment about facial recognition technology on my last episode, and I think I did. If I didn't, I apologize. But it was because of a podcast called At Liberty. You'd be very interested to hear. I may have told you about this. I think you've told me about yes, it. Yes, yes. Put out by the ACLU. Great podcast. You got to mm-hmm. check it out. But what they were talking about was not that facial recognition technology is one hundred percent going to just be instantly an authoritarian fascist nightmare. But that usually the way legislation works is something like Parkland happens, something like Trayvon Martin happens, right. something like, oh, the the temperature in some part of the world is eventually so right. horrible. A huge glacier a crushes huge, apart. Exactly. Yeah. A huge watershed thing happens, right. and we are reactive in our policy. Oh, for sure. In my view, pretty much the only real decent point against recreational marijuana is what you're outlining there, which is people getting in cars and driving. Yeah. Because, uh, and I think you agree, I agree a lot with um, classical liberalism and progressivism in the way that the government's main function is to protect yours, mine, everyone's civil liberties. Yeah. Is protecting you. And if the government allows marijuana recreationally and somebody gets in a car and kills, you know, a family of four... Who was completely sober quite the on the way to Wally World, yeah. <laughs> then that's that would be a reactive thing, and then now we're going to make a policy. Yeah. You would be in favor, if I'm hearing you correctly, in before we do recreation, let's make sure we at least have a little stick that a cop right. can be sure yeah. about that. At, at the very minimum, we should have that before we go in. And let's that's do this safely, is what I'm saying. That's not, that's not out on a limb at all. No, in my it's very close to the trunk. Definitely. It's very close to the trunk. I agree with that 100%. What about other drugs recreationally? Does that, does that, does that logic follow with cocaine? Does it follow with uh, magic mushrooms? Yeah, that's where, that's where we get into a little (laughs) bit of a conundrum there because it would be very easy to make that jump. Right. Uh, And I think people like Beto O'Rourke uh, others like him are making that jump right now Definitely. and campaigning on that jump. Definitely. And I don't know where I stand on that as much. You maybe have thought about this more than I have, and so maybe um, you can tell me what you think and I can just 
uh, talk about that. Sure. What do you think about it? Sure. And to be honest with you, I there, there's a there's a line when talking about politics when you when you have a really core, really sensible idea, and then I think there's a shade lighter, which is like more of your really personal opinion mm-hmm. that you would you would probably vote on, and then even further, there's a little bit of a of a fun aspect to it almost, where yeah, you're like, yeah, I'm ultra conservative or yeah. ultra progressive, yeah, legalize everything, and uh, <laughs> to be honest with you, it's not it's not necessarily a political show, but we are we do have a guest on that is interested in politics, so I am going to be honest, I I do I do think that exact logic follows, especially. Especially with something that is non-harmful, like psychedelics. Yes. Almost all psychedelics are going to be not harmful to your body at I all. Really, the only the only thing that would be a reasonable debate, as 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 I said earlier, is that is the impairment of driving. Yeah, and we're uh, we are if if that's a reasonable that's certainly a reasonable line for me to yeah. say we need to yeah. have that kind of technology at least before we proceed, and I would probably be in favor of that. All I think in I all honesty, too. if that was being proposed. Yeah. If somebody came up first, though, and we're, we're, we're saying something more along the lines of it's all going to be legal and we'll develop the technology in a little bit, I wish I could support that, but something in me, I think, would block it. And that's something, so that's something in me is my trip to Walmart where I look around me and I see the people around and I think, yeah. you know, I don't think I want him to have access to mushrooms and a car at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as, mu- as much as I don't think it's the government's job to do that... It scares me. Yeah. It's just an emotional reaction. Yeah. And is that logically consistent? Maybe not. Maybe it is more of an emotional thing in that scenario. Maybe it's logically founded as a little bit too. But that's, uh, you know, that's certainly something that I would that I would have to do more thinking about. And luckily that vote is probably a few, a few years removed yes. <laughs> at least. Yes. Sam, there is, there is a fantastic point, uh, a fantastic podcast I listened to that I really want to bring up to you, and I mentioned to it, and, and the title of this podcast episode from Ken Jennings and John Roderick in their fantastic podcast called The Omnibus, the title of that episode is Cocaine Hippos, mm. and we talked about this a little bit before the show, but it is just too good. I'm, I'm not going to hold out from you any longer, Sam, or my no listeners. Way. I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into this thing I find so Fascinating. So obviously Pablo Escobar, Narcos, everybody's familiar, everybody knows. Supposedly a little bit of a Robin Hood type character in in Colombia, in South America, building football stadiums. Really charitable. Definitely. Surprisingly. Even as thousands, tens of thousands are dying as the drug wars are happening, certainly Pablo Escobar fancies himself (coughs) a community leader. A man of the people. Definitely. And that is, in a lot of places, still how he's regarded. Yeah. Whether it's, you know... I mean, can't you know? Apologize for that, but so is Che Guevara. You know, yeah. same same type yeah, of exactly. So, so he, I would probably say for the layperson, Pablo Escobar is even a little bit more attractive, just because we like the idea of a drug lord yeah. who's who's making money in a little bit unsavory way, but he's also kind of a cowboy and he's yeah. he's chubby and he's he's, he's got cool TV yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's that. cool to watch and it's cool to fantasize about. Funny enough, another thing like that is the childhood kind of glossy, kind of sweet idea of the friendly, happy hippopotamus, which in our day, which is, they articulate this perfectly in the Omnibus episode, 
is kind of having a renaissance as we now understand that it is like one of the biggest killers in Africa. (laughs) These things are not like leafy, munchy, fun, puffy guys. They are brutal killers and zoos will not even take adult ones because they're so brutal. So, if you're Pablo Escobar and you have all of this money and a tiny little son, you want exotic animals. Mike Tyson with the tiger. Right. Right? That's it's it's some sort of even back in the day when you wanted to show you were a man of the people or a man of culture, you would have big walls of the east on your on your on your or big maps of the east on your wall to show mm-hmm. that you had traveled and you were yeah. cultured. Or you had a uh, you know, a leopard skin to show that you had you had cavorted yeah. among the tribes of Africa. You were a man who had traveled. You were well read. You could just as easily as you could hit a baseball or win a jousting match. You could recite a poem, and that you had done all these things, which is not a, which is not a terrible idea whatsoever. Oh, but cool. it's a little wild when you start importing and smuggling exotic animals that are the right. size of your house, yeah, and That's can eat little, you. <laughs> Far-fetched. So this is what Pablo Escobar does. He brings in hippos. Among other animals, elephants, other things of this nature, of course. He brought in hippopotamuses. And once Pablo Escobar was killed, it becomes, well, what do we do with all of these animals? There's so many animals. Well, the Colombian government says, if we got all these animals, it might as well be a zoo. So they take a zoo... And it was a phenomenon of people eventually, after after this had all broken down and things had gone all kinds of sideways, that there are huge animals that look exactly like hippos, but can't be because there are no native hippos to South America. People calling in the police saying, Ken Jennings, and, and let me tell you something, a little sidebar about Ken Jennings. Mm-hmm. He was one of the hosts of this podcast, along with John Roderick. He's probably the greatest Jeopardy player of all time, meaning a hero of mine. Right. Don't meet your heroes. He's I won't say I, I won't say what I want to say, but listening to him is different than watching him on Jeopardy. Certainly, and right. you know, a little sidebar about that: if you really want to meet your heroes that bad, think about it first. Anyway, Ken Jennings articulates somebody probably it went like this: probably a Colombian celebrating a football match or something. He's walking around and he sees this big, chubby, puffy animal hanging about. He calls the police and says, "There is a hippopotamus." But of course that can't be because we're in South America and there are no hippopotamuses here. And the the dispatch or whatever they have in Colombia <coughs> probably says something to the effect of, well, there can't be any hippopotamuses, so you're probably seeing a manatee yawning or something. This is effectively what yeah. Ken said for the show. But when, and they talked about this a little bit in the podcast, but I am I'm really into this. I have this book called Last of the Giants right now, which is all mm-hmm. about, excuse me, megafauna, prehistoric, enormous animals that are just so big, so much bigger. Arthopleura is this species of giant millipedes that was crawling around. And let me tell you, ever since the Earth stopped having enormous millipedes like the size of cars, it's it's all been downhill since then. (laughs) The Earth has just never been that cool as that time. But... Interestingly, and this all ties back in. I don't want. I'm not going to be so out on a limb because I'm going to tie it back into humans controlling nature. Due to this wild story about Pablo Escobar importing these hippos, hippos are now around in that area. Really? They're kind of thriving now, and because the last time, the last huge mammals that were surviving in this niche were these megafauna. They were enormous, like mastodon type stuff, like sloths, yeah. huge things, and they were around when 
just as humans started to show up, and then humans start eating them, and they start dying. No more giant mammals in this area of South America except like manatees. Right, yeah. But now, there's hippos! Hippos can survive, because now the niche is empty, and there were no big megafauna to fill it, and they're doing great, and they're so happy. And, you know, you can go to zoos, and they like feeding them pumpkins and stuff in, like, zoos here, but to be honest with you, that's insane that, like, almost by dumb luck, right. a vacuum would be there and not enough time for a new mammal or th- rodent to grow yeah, into something that could dominate. Yeah. Nature hates a vacuum. Right. So, luckily enough, there was a vacuum for just long enough for a drug lord to smuggle in these enormous <laughs> exotic animals and have hippos just thrive there. And that, to me, is incredibly fascinating. That is cool. It's a very cool story. And and so it it I think I think it has to do with what we need to be conscious about what we're doing to the environment. Because most of the time we don't bring in hippos and they don't end right. up jolly. What happens usually, Sam? Uh that vacuum is filled by something completely worse. Or we just cut all the forest down where yeah. it doesn't even survive we long just enough. Turn it hippos into plants. Just boards. Or we Fill it up with chemicals because we're trying to grow cotton there. Or we do whatever. So, the question is, what do we do? What do we do when we figure out some natural thing that we need to exploit for human resources? What do we do? Uh, That's a great question. And if you (laughs) would come up with the answer to that question, I think you'd be a very wealthy man. Definitely. I think that's... We're talking about Nobel Prize territory. If you could figure out something like that... It's one of the reasons I started this this episode off with a Star Trek Captain Picard impression. Because mm-hmm. they figure out, in the Star Trek universe, one of the best things that, that they, the Starfleet ever figures out is that any time humans stick their toe in something, it always goes wrong. So just stay out of it. The Prime Directive literally states you cannot interfere with another society or culture or anything. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid we're a little bit past that, though, as yeah, far as so. the Earth goes. Right. And the next planet we're going to colonize, Mars, doesn't really have a delicate ecosystem no, to balance. We could here. do a lot of things on Mars, and I think Mars would be okay. Right. Well, well the first thing we're going to have to do is just ruin it for ourselves. We're going to have to terraform right. it yeah. somehow. We're going to have to, like Elon Musk says, drop a couple of thermonuclear warheads on the poles or something like that. Yeah. The technology is a ways off. But we're at a point in history where we know the technology is going to be there someday. Yeah, someday. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. You would have had no idea at any other time in history what sorts of stuff you were going to be able to do. For all you know, we were just going to be stuck in the in the caves forever or right, in, yeah. you know, dying from tuberculosis yeah. every day. But how do we how do we take stock of the earth? How do we how do we look around? How does the lay person, how does somebody who's not a conservationist right. or somebody from day to day, how do you how do you think we should proceed? As far as just environmentalism in general? Definitely. Well, I think it starts with just you as a person being more conscious about things, and then it goes from that to telling your friends to be more conscious about things, Mm. and then they tell their friends, and eventually it just kind of wraps around with everyone, and everyone gets involved, and either we realize the urgency of this issue, or we don't, and... Something very bad happens. Something very bad happens, definitely. It comes down to. And it's important, because if you're a Christian, we're to be good stewards of what we have. Right. 
The very first thing a human being ever does is take stock of all the plants and animals and things he has around him. Mm -hmm. If you believe in, you know, the, the, I mean, that's even if you don't take the story of Genesis literally, the first thing Adam does, the first thing, therefore, the first thing humans do is just look around. Yeah. Just see what's going on. Just see what's going on and see what we have at our disposal, what we've been gifted with. Mm-hmm. 100%. And it's it's something I think that really applies when you're talking about the, the uh, is it the categorical imperative from Kant? Or, yes. or, or that just, just the idea of to live ethically, do an act so that if everybody else did exactly what you're doing, we'd be okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the that's that's definitely what we're striving for. Right. And for environmentalism, a lot of people don't want to hear you know carpooling, right. do all this yeah. cut, no more plastic kind bags, suburban family mom, right? Environmentalism, issues. but it really does not have to be that. It really does. And right. I'm not trying to preach to anybody either. But if you just think, hey, maybe I could, maybe I could, I don't know. Save a couple of drops of water here and there. Yeah. Not, not run the water while I'm brushing my teeth. Yeah, exactly. And then you're like, wow, is that really helping? Maybe not, just you. It can't be hurting. But it's not hurting. It's helping us. Yeah. If everybody does it, that's a significant balance. And then, wow, I like doing that. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad if I just didn't use plastic bags at the grocery yeah. store. Maybe I brought my own. Yeah. In Put fact, a recycling bin in your kitchen. Definitely. Yeah. Composting it's, bin. It's small things. Small things. And it's it is it is truly more. If if you need any more convincing, I'd love to talk to you anytime about it. But it really is more than just. I don't want you to to dig up oil out of the ground. I want to dig up oil out of here. Right. It really is more than that. It Absolutely. really Absolutely. gets to the heart of life on Earth, and it gets to biodiversity. And some people say we're living in an age of extinction. Some people aren't quite so convinced. But either way, humans are dominant. Of the, of the environment. Oh. For better or worse, we have extreme control over it. Excuse me about that. And eventually we're going to have control. China's working on gene modification. Eventually we're going to have control over what we do with ourselves. Mm-hmm. So one way or another, we're going to have to figure it out, aren't we? Yeah. Definitely. Well, Sam, let's see if we missed any points here. What about the Lorax? What about it? What's not to love? What's know? not to love? That mustache. It's lovable. That's the only way to describe it. It's lovable. Have you been reading that book since you were little? Have I been coming in? The Lorax. Have you been, have you been on the Lorax since you were really oh, young? Oh, I've been on the whole Dr. Seuss train. Oh, really? Oh, so you're, sure. so you're more I, Dr. Seuss I love than Dr. Seuss. Than in any other children's author? Do you have any others that really stand out to you? Uh, Shel Silverstein. Shel Silverstein. Classic. Grandma has all of them. Yeah. Always reading those when I'm at the For house. Sure. And you know what I like about Shel Silverstein? A lot of a lot of young children's entertainment, I think, is a little too glossy and a little too not how the world is. Yeah, Shel Silverstein is a little bit demented. It's a little realist. Yeah. It's a little weird, and it's a yeah. little bit scary sometimes. Yeah, did you ever did that ever scare you as a kid reading that stuff? I don't think I fully understood most of it <laughs> as a child, but once I got to maybe middle school and started kind of just going through those right. books on our shelf, and we're talking about a limousine so long that you step in it and you're in another state. Yeah, that's the type of stuff Shel Silverstein is. If you're not on that. What have you been doing, man? you got to get on the Shel Silverstein train. Yeah. You and I are both very interested in literature, Sam. Tell me a little bit about George Saunders. 
Okay, so George Saunders is a professor. Is he at Stanford? Is that, that sounds right. That sounds I right. Think he's Stanford. I'm gonna Google it. Yeah, don't quote me on that until yeah. he confirms it. But I think he's at Stanford. <laughs> uh, fantastic kind of satirist. Uh, kind of writes like Mark Twain. The book that you and I have both read that I assume we'll talk about is Lincoln and the Bardo. It won the Ooh, I'll Man, look that Booker, up too. Man Booker Award. That sounds right. I think it was in 2016. It's about uh, Abraham Lincoln and Willie Lincoln when Willie passes away. He's in between life and death waiting to be judged uh, to see if he'll go to heaven or hell. And um, it's this period called the Bardo. He's in Bardo. And so it's kind of the life of Willie Lincoln after life, you could say. Mm. He's with two other ghosts that are kind of, that kind of make up the three main characters. And then, so Willie's uh, portion of the book is clearly fiction. Mm. It's not real at all. But then it, when it jumps to Abe, it's nonfiction. So right. it's kind of a hybrid fiction, nonfiction Historical book. fiction. Very cool. Uh, really well written. Right. George Saunders is fantastic. It's a little bit on the vulgar side, so maybe if right. you're not interested in that, they'll Definitely. that one up. But Ask mom and dad before going yeah. to www.georgesaunders. Yeah, <laughs> uh, George Saunders professor at Syracuse. 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 Definitely. And it's it's so interesting. I love to see an author take an idea so creative as like the Tibetan Book of the Dead yeah. style of death and put it in such a distinctly Western scenario yeah. as the Civil War yeah. and just becomes a wildly creative story. I am a fan of of George Saunders right there. Are you are you in anything else literature right now? Are you are you reading anything else? Uh, right now I'm not reading any books. I let's see, what was the last one I finished? You were work uh, you were working on The Demons of Loudon. The Devils of Loudon. The Devils of Loudon. That one was just a little dull for me and I yeah. didn't make it very far. That's from Alger Suxley. He's yes. one of my favorites. Uh, I borrowed that off of Campbell's shelf actually. <laughs> <coughs> um the last book I read over Christmas break, I read a couple of Stephen King books, The Green Mile and eleven twenty-two sixty-three. Right. I believe. Whatever the date is. Is it the JFK. actual date of the yes. assassination? Is yeah, that the, the title? date of the JFK assassination. Yeah. And that was a really good book. Really long, so you got to kind of uh, set your heels in to read that one, but it's have, worth it, I think. Have you watched the James Franco miniseries? I have not. It's on Hulu. Really? I haven't seen it, but hmm. it's uh, they made a miniseries of it a little bit ago. We should watch that. We should, yeah. Okay. You know, I I think with that, I don't think we went too out on a limb at any no. point in that show. But okay. Sam, you're going to be on again. That was a that was an excellent little discussion, not only for an episode like this, but I think Sam watches a lot of movies. I think we should do occasionally maybe a movie review show we should watch a movie either pick one out that we've seen yeah. rewatch it together take a few notes yeah go over it while we like it you know what i mean i, I would be there's a podcast called movie crush that i love and he really? you know has a guest come on celebrity or whoever and yeah. he says you know what's your movie crush what's your if we could talk about one movie what would you want to talk about and so he the guy will say the godfather Mm-hmm. And so they both rewatched The Godfather, come in for the show. They spend the first half talking about themselves, and the guests like, we wouldn't have to do that because we've right, already done yeah. this episode. Then we, they talk, the second half, they talk about the movie. Like they just go through and what they really love about it, their connection to it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think something like that would be really interesting to do with you and me. Uh, we could definitely talk about new ones. I mean, oh, yeah. I've, got, I've, got, I've got one guy lined up to talk about Endgame. 
Zach really? Van over my youth group when it comes yeah. out. So that's going to be a big one. That's going to be a big draw. Yeah. We're going to get those yeah. listeners up. Get those subscriber numbers up. <laughs> Smash that subscribe button. Smash that subscribe button. Go ahead and leave us a rating and review on Tripping for Good. Out on a limb with Campbell Cobalt. This has been Sam Barron. Thank you for coming on, Sam. Thank you for having me. And Campbell Cobalt. Hope to have you join us again next Wednesday. Sayonara. Adios.